Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. We hope these messages encourage, convict, and inspire you to love and follow Jesus more faithfully as we seek to saturate our city with the hope of the gospel. Our online resources are meant to serve you, but they aren't a replacement for the face-to-face relationships that we were built for. So we really hope that if you're in Owensboro, you'll join us in person on a Sunday morning. And if you live elsewhere, you'll find a local church in your community where you can put down roots and find family. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc. Amen. Good morning. Hey, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. You know, from day one of our 16-year history as a church, God has called us to be a sending church. We have sent out church planters all over North America and missionaries all over the world and is deeply embedded in the DNA of our church. And so as part of our next initiative, as you know, we're asking God to raise up five new international missionaries we can send out and three new church planters we can send out, whether that be North America or to the ends of the world. And God has already been answering that first prayer as here in just a few weeks, we are sending out our next uh, missionary overseas, Dr. Conrad Cross. Doc, come on up, brother. Uh, Dr. Cross has been an incredible faithful member of our church for a few years now, ever since the Lord brought him here. He has been a a wonderful physician just across the street at Owensboro Health, and God is calling Conrad to give his life to go overseas in a post-Soviet area of Central Asia that's very dark spiritually, where he will serve in a medical clinic, where he will love and serve the broken, and where he will teach and train medical residents as as well in that local country. And so, pleasant Valley, what we are going to do is agree as a church body to stand beside him and behind him and pray for him as he obeys the Great Commission and is using the unique gifts God has given him of medicine to take that to a place where people don't just need physical healing, but they need the hope of the gospel in a place where there's very little of any gospel presence. So what we want to do is pray for and commission him. This is his last Sunday to be with us before he leaves. And so if a few of you would come up here, Dr. Milam, I see you who's been heavily involved. Let's have a few of you come on up. Let's lay hands on Conrad and pray for him and ask God to bless him and keep him for the gospel to go forward in Central Asia. You can't all fit up here, so if you would just pray with us from where you're, where you're seated at this time. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and Lord, we thank you for uh, this gift of Conrad. Father, thank you that he is obeying the call of Jesus to go to the nations. Father, your word says, beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of Jesus. So Father, wrap your arms around our brother. Father, I pray that as he prepares to go, that you would guard his heart and mind in Christ. Father, I pray you would provide for all of his needs needs in the fundraising endeavor. Father, I pray that when he arrives on the scene, you would give him quick grace to learn what is a very difficult language. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would uniquely gift him to learn the language quickly so that he can interact most helpfully with the people there. And Father, bless the work of his hands in the medical clinics. Father, give him acute wisdom and insight to how to best treat and diagnose those with infectious diseases. 
shares. Father, I pray that you would give him favor with the local people there, that when he shares the name of Jesus, it would be well-received. And Lord, we pray that in Central Asia, that the gospel would go forward in great power and conviction. Lord, bless our brother, keep him, protect him from the enemy and use him. And Father, help us to remember him, though he'll be thousands of miles away to pray for him and keep him close in our hearts. Father, thank you for the gift it is to lay hands on one and send them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter one. We'll mostly be at the beginning of the Bible today. So I've been told that deer season recently wrapped up. I think that's why attendance is picking back up at church, I suppose. We love deer. They're made out of steak. So they're they're awesome and we're grateful for that. But you know, we one of our kids has a very sensitive heart for animals. So anytime we're driving down the road and we see a deer lying on the side of the road, for one of our kids, it's a very emotional time for them. They're very sensitive to that. And so what I've noticed though is we'll pass a deer on the side of the road um, and our child will get very emotional. But then typically after a minute or two, they no offense to the deer, but they kind of get over it. And then we're fighting again over who gets to pick the next play track on Spotify. So that's typically what happens when we see an animal lying on the fallen side of the road. But now contrast that with the silence heard on the streets of Owensboro just this past week on Thursday as a young man in our community is fighting for his last breath. And we see that, and it just grips our soul. A number of you were there to watch this young man and to pray for him and his family. So I want us to compare and contrast two scenarios. The first scenario, I introduced a deer lying on the side of the road, and we keep driving. And then secondly, a six-year-old young man fighting for his life. And the streets of Owensboro are filled with citizens with love and tears. And the very center of our being is gripped with emotion. Two scenarios, two very different reactions. Why? It's because little King Nazir is not simply a higher form of an evolved animal. That little six-year-old boy is a handcrafted masterpiece created in the image of God, and his life matters. As does all of human life, whether only two weeks conceived in the mother's womb or a nine-year-old little girl with Down syndrome, or a refugee fleeing for she and her children's life from a war-torn country, or a 93-year-old in the nursing home with dementia who can no longer remember her name. When we see another human being, we see the very image of God. Today, Christians all over the country are celebrating Sanctity of Human Life Sunday as we have at Pleasant Valley since the first day we opened the doors of this church. 
But when it comes to the sanctity of human life, this is not primarily a cultural, social, or political issue. It is first and foremost a theological issue. Sanctity of human life matters precisely because every single human life bears the image of God, which means an attack on human life or to abort human life, disrespect for human life, making fun of or bullying human life, racial prejudice against human life, hate-filled homophobia, against human life, neglecting the elderly's human life. An attack or threat on human life is by definition an attack on God himself. Genesis chapter nine, verse number six, God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So here's what, the 20th century theologian, Anthony Hokema writes, he says, the reason that murder is here said to be such a heinous crime is that the man who has been murdered is someone who imaged God, reflected God, was like God and represented God. Therefore, when one kills a human being, not only does he take that person's life, but he hurts God himself, the God who was reflected in that individual. To touch the image of God is to touch God himself. To kill the image of God is to do violence to God himself, the sanctity of human life. So this morning, we're going to look at what theologians call the Imago Dei, which is a Latin phrase meaning made in God's image. And we see this beautiful doctrine that is foundational to the Christian faith from the very opening lines of scripture. So in Genesis chapter one, God is creating the whole world. In the first 25 verses of the Bible, God says the same phrase seven times. When he's making everything, God says, let there be. So here's a quick survey. In verse three, God said, let there be light. There was light. In verse six, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And it was, verse nine, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was, verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And it did. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the night from the day. That just means the sun, the moon, and the stars. And in verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And out pops bass fish and shamu. And then in verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures and out pops puppy dogs and penguins and peacocks. So God does that. So seven times in Genesis chapter one, God says the same phrase, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. Then in verse 26, God makes a hard turn. And in verse 26, God says for the first time, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice the contrast. For all the rest of creation, God says, let there be. But for mankind, God says, let us make. All of a sudden, God's creative work gets incredibly personal. When God creates humanity, the whole Trinity takes ownership God is saying in verse 26, let us 
That's the first reference to the Trinity in Scripture. So it's although the Father is saying, Son, Spirit, let us come together and make men and women and little boys and girls, let's make them like us, which means God delights in puppy dogs and kitty cats, but only in humanity does God stamp his very own personal image. And this is why six times, in Genesis chapter one, God looks at everything that he made and he said, what? It is good. So he says, the Panama City beaches are good. The Rocky Mountains are good. He says, fried chicken is good. Country music is good. But then God gets to mankind in verse 31 and notice the contrast again. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So mankind gets God's first superlative. Not just good, but very good. God saves the best for last. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. Humanity is the grand finale of the firework display of God's beautiful handiwork. Humans are the icing on God's cake. And what you gotta love about God is he makes mankind on day six, on Friday, just in time for the weekend. Now by Monday, we screwed it all up, but that's what happens. Now, now go back to the image of God. One of the most foundational doctrines in all of scripture. Look at verse 26 again. Then God said, let us, that's Father, Son, Spirit, make man in our image. That's the word we're gonna drill into, the word image. After our likeness. Then what you're gonna see is God gives mankind dominion over all of creation, animal life, etc. Then verse 27, the same thing. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We'll come back to that later. Now flip over to chapter five, verse one, more of the same. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Flip over to chapter nine, verse six, the same thing. For God made man in his own image. Now, here's what we're gonna do. Look at that word image in verse number six, and you see that same Hebrew word four times in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter nine. Then that word likeness, you see, is twice used, twice in chapter one, twice in chapter five. So the words image and likeness basically mean the same thing. Almost all theologians agree on that. Now here's the idea. What does it mean to be made in the image or likeness of God? That Hebrew word for image comes from a root word that means to carve or to cut as though out of a statue, for example. In other words, mankind is a carved out representation of God. Mankind is a carved out representation of God so that every single human being is a handcrafted masterpiece from heaven. And just like at the bottom right corner, typically of a beautiful painting, you see the signature of the artist. So in the same way, at the core of every human being, you see the signature of God. So that every human soul, whether believer or not, is intrinsically crying out, God was here. 
We exist not by chance or coincidence or random, impersonal bang billions of years ago. We exist because a creator intelligently designed us and then imprinted his image on us so that when the world sees us, they ought to see something of God. In the same way that, for example, when you think about your children, right? In, in most situations, our, our kids bear resemblance to either mom or dad. And so it's, it's a good thing for our kids that in most cases, people say, y'all look just like your mama. And uh, somebody say amen over here. That's rude, man. Forget you. I mean, if you, you look at, our, by the way, this is my kids and my mom. I take time. You, many of you, mom's been in at Vandy since Christmas morning. She was lifelight. And she's still there in the hospital. Continue to pray for her. Thank you. But you see our three kids here. And, and you look at them and they're the spitting image, as it were, of their mom. When you see Annie, you see uh, a reflection of our kids. And when God looks at us, he sees a reflection of himself because he's put himself in us. So, so here's what that means. On a, we, can, we can go on from that screen, thank you. So here's what that means on a practical level. Whoever our parents are, whether we're straight out of Sunday school or straight out of prison, whether we got no education or all the degrees, whether we're rich or poor, Every life in this room has intrinsic value and worth. Now, here's why I love what Hannah Anderson does in her book, Made for More, that I read this past week. Here's what Hannah writes. She says, no matter how small we actually may be, we are not insignificant. We are not lost in the grand cosmos. We do matter, but it's not because of anything we've done. It's because of something God did back at the beginning. Because back when God created all this beauty, all this life, all this splendor, he capped it off with one final masterpiece, one that he did not leave to words alone. No, for this final masterpiece, God stooped down and left his own fingerprints in the dust. And that final masterpiece was us. Wow. Now, here's what happened. God creates mankind day six. We don't know exactly what day it was, but a few days thereafter, we, perfectly bearing his image at that point, rebel against him. Our ancestors, Adam and Eve, sin, their sin has been imputed to us. We're born into sin. And, and, and sin that our mothers conceive us, Psalm 51.5. Now, we still bear the image of God in spite of our sin, but that image is now distorted and it's marred. But that's why Christ came. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, this was two weeks ago sermon. Jesus Christ is the exact and perfect representation of the image of God. If you want to see God, look at Christ. He is God. And so what Jesus does for sinners is he doesn't simply die on a cross to save us from our sin, but he now lives inside us and is changing us. And in Colossians 3.13, notice what happens when we come to Christ. We have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So in other words, we call this sanctification in theological language. 
from the day we meet Jesus, he is at work in us, chipping away the old person, renewing and making us more into his image so that by God's grace and the work of the Spirit over the course of our life, we ought to be looking more and more like Christ. Now, we'll never perfectly achieve that in this life, but one day when we die, the final bang to what we call the order of salvation, the order salutis, is when God raises our bodies from the dead at the second coming of Christ. And in that moment, we're what theologians call glorified. Our lowly bodies, Philippians 3, are transformed, become like Christ's glorious body. One day again in the new heavens and new earth, we will perfectly, with no blemish, unfiltered, bear the image of God in Christ. So that's what God's doing in humanity. So what does all that mean practically on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday? That's the theology of it. And you've got to start there. Well, here's what that means practically. It means all human life is deeply precious to God, has intrinsic value, and is worthy of dignity, love, and respect. Christians, what that means is when we say we're pro-life, we're pro-all of life. From the womb all the way until the final breath. And so I want to give you a few examples of what that means for the people of God. Number one, every unborn child from the moment of conception, and I could take 30 minutes and make an incredible biblical argument for that. In God's heart and mind, life begins at conception. And you can even make the case before conception happens, God knows our name. He says to Jeremiah, before I even formed your mother's womb, I knew you. There's, there's no arguing that. To say there's a time when what's going on in the mother's womb is not life is insanity. So every unborn child from the moment of conception bears the image of God and is worthy of dignity, love, and respect. Now, look at this beautiful work. Consider the personal care and attention God gives to every single child from the moment of conception. Look at Psalm 139. This is amazing. So David here is referring to the womb of a pregnant woman, and he's speaking to God, and he says, God, for you formed my inward parts. God, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So in ancient days, before, of course, modern technology, we didn't have ultrasounds, for example. So so in those days, they referred to the womb of the woman as a dark, mysterious place. We didn't know physiologically or scientifically what was going on in there. So David does that. He refers to the womb in a metaphor as it's dark, it's mysterious. But, but, but David says, but God's in there. And in this passage, God doesn't just snap his finger and out pops all these babies and all of us. No, but, but David says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
God personally, specifically, and uniquely designs, crafts, knits, weaves, forms with his finger. Every single child, they're not just numbers to God. They're not just a mass of cells. They have names. Every child gets their own DNA. Every child has their own fingerprints. God's signature is stamped on every little soul. And so we love every unborn child because they are the image of God and they deserve, even as our forefathers and our founding fathers declared They deserve the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because no child is a mistake. Conceived in or out of wedlock, no child is a mistake. Every child is a gift. Psalm 127.3. And that is why one of the great joys of our church from the very beginning has been to partner alongside CareNet of Owensboro, who is on the front lines every day of loving and caring for not just moms and their children, but also the dad and the family. In just a few minutes, you're going to hear more from them. Secondly, in a consistent pro-life ethic, every child or adult with special needs bears the image of God and is worthy of dignity, love, and respect. Down syndrome, autism, Asperger's, cerebral palsy, fetal alcohol syndrome, missing limbs, intellectual disabilities, learning disabilities, rare genetic disorders like little King Nazir, whose story we saw earlier. These dear ones are so precious and special to the heart of God. You, 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 you read the New Testament and Jesus spends a massive amount of time around what we would today call the special needs community. I mean, Matthew more than once characterizes Jesus's ministry in that way. Jesus lived in and among this beautiful community of people. Because when he looked at them, he saw the reflection of God. And that is why at Pleasant Valley, we are deeply committed. In fact, it's a huge component of our next initiative to make this church the safest, most accessible, accommodating, welcoming, equipping church we can possibly be for every family in this community with special needs of any form or kind. We are committed to that by the grace of God. Third, in a consistent pro-life ethic, the elderly, regardless of mental or physical capacity, bear the image of God and are worthy of dignity, love, and respect. My grandma and Papa Stalins, they're both in heaven now. They were married 64 years. The last several years of my Papa Stalin's life, he, uh, he had dementia. And those of you that have family that have experienced that, you, you know how difficult that is. And so on one hand, my sweet grandfather would sing love songs 
to my grandmother. His wife is 64 years. And in the very next breath, he couldn't remember her name. And yet we watched my grandmother love him and serve him and hold his hand every day until his final breath, even when he had nothing to offer in the relationship. Because she saw in him, God, the image of God. This is a word in particular for those of us that are younger, and I don't know how we define that, but it's a tragedy It's an absolute tragedy. It's an assault on the Imago Dei when so many of our elderly population, men and women, live the last years of their lives basically alone. In some cases, they don't have biological family. In just as tragic the cases, they do have family, but the family is allegedly too busy to come see them. Brothers and sisters, this is a a charge for all of us, including me, and with my aging mother and and aunts and uncles and, and church members. This is for all of us to forget the aging and elderly, to neglect the widow and widower is an abandonment on the very image of God. And so grandkids, go see your grandparents. Parents, let's take our kids to the nursing homes. Christ is there. And we cannot forget about these dear men and women created in his image. I would encourage you to see Marla Carter in the lobby after one of our services to learn more about Faithful Friends, our incredible ministry here that seeks to love and serve and care for those in our local nursing homes. We go every week. Number four, in a consistent pro-life ethic, every race, skin color, and ethnic group bears the image of God and is worthy of dignity, love, and respect. I'm not so naive as to think that in this room or watching online, there are not people who don't think that all men are created equal based upon their skin color. I wonder how many professing Christians go to church on Sunday and then turn their noses up when they see refugees in our community. I wonder how many parents or grandparents, and none in this church to my knowledge, but who have turned their back on a child or grandchild for bringing home a boyfriend, girlfriend, or fiance of a different skin color. Not in this church, but I know of people personally where parents who profess Christ have disowned their children when they adopted a child whose skin color was not white. I want to be very clear. That is not Christianity. That's what we would call racism. Because the image of God is 
beautifully and equally imprinted on every tongue, tribe, nation, race, and ethnicity. Number five, every woman bears the image of God and is worthy of dignity, love, and respect. That might seem like, well, why would you take the time to say that? Here's why. There are professing Christian men who are male chauvinist. They view women as less than, and they disrespect and dishonor women. They speak down to their wives, girlfriends, or moms. They don't respect and value the intellect or opinion of the women they work with or that they go to church with. There are some men who bear the name of Christ that believe a woman only brings value if she's in the kitchen or the bedroom. And then if that is you or if you are watching online, you are in sin and you should repent and ask forgiveness first from God and then from those ladies in your life that you have sinned against. And for some men in this room, in this church, that means asking forgiveness from our wife. She does not exist to meet your physical needs and to bring you a beer. She is a beautiful, handcrafted, intelligent masterpiece of God. Treat her as such or you're going to have a big problem with her father in heaven. But also the devaluing of the image of God and women takes place in pornography. Viewing pornography is the sickening, degrading objectification of women created in the image of God. Pornography demeans women as objects to be consumed instead of image bearers to be valued. To look at pornography is to be complicit in the sex trafficking industry. It demoralizes and tramples all over the dignity of God seen in precious women made in his image. The woman on the other side of that iPhone or that iPad or that screen is somebody's daughter. To those men who refuse to repent and you just keep justifying it as, well, this is just every man's battle. I'm always going to struggle with, with this. What if it was your daughter? What if it was your daughter and thousands of men who could not keep their pants up consumed her as an object of their ravenous lust? So to those whom it applies, repent. And to young men who are asking teenage girls to Snapchat you or to text you inappropriate pictures of themselves, stop it. That's God's daughter. 
And lastly, people in the homosexual and transgender community bear the image of God and are worthy of dignity, love, and respect. This is a moment in our culture where we don't need preachers to be silent, but to be honest and bold and clear, and so we will. In Genesis 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The Bible is crystal clear. Gender is not fluid. God created us male or female. God determines that we don't. When we try to, we're playing God. The Bible is also crystal clear that sex was designed only for one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Anything outside of that is sin. Jesus also says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he gave no qualifications or parentheses. Jesus never said, love your neighbor as yourself unless they're gay. LGBTQ, love your neighbor as yourself. Because regardless of gender dysphoria or sexual orientation, and we can debate nature and nurture, it's irrelevant to this point. These are precious human beings created in the image of God, and they are worthy of dignity, love, and respect. So middle school and high school boys or adult men, stop the gay jokes and repent. You're not cute. You're not funny. You're bullies. And if there is a gay or transgender person that you've made fun of or bullied, go to them immediately, confess your sin, and ask their forgiveness. There is no place for bigotry or hate-filled homophobia in the church of Jesus Christ. I believe it was Jesus who said, let he who is not sinned cast the first stone. There are professing Christians who stand in judgment of gays, and yet they're looking at pornography and sleeping with their girlfriend and they're hypocrites. Jesus would say, we should first remove the plank out of our own eye so that we can see clearly to remove the speck out of someone else's. So for Christians, brothers and sisters, when we say we're pro-life, we mean pro-all of life, whether two weeks conceived in the mother's womb or the nine-year-old little girl with Down syndrome or the refugee fleeing for she and her daughter's life from a war-torn country, or the 93-year-old with dementia that can't remember his name. 
Every single human being is an image bearer of God and every single human being is precious to God and is intrinsic value and worthy of dignity, love, and respect. That is what the Bible says about the image of God. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, this is a holy moment for us to set under your word God, help us to see human life the way you see human life. God, forgive us where we have sinned against image bears made in and for your glory. Father, forgive us as Christians where we have not loved, respected, or honored human life. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit in this moment would, do, would help us to do introspection. God, we pray like David, search us and know us, and God, tell us if there's any sin in us. Lord, we're just going to be quiet in your presence and say, Spirit, show us if there's any sin from which we need to repent after hearing God's word today. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Father, we repent. Lord Jesus, give us grace and the help of your Spirit to love our neighbors as ourselves, our little neighbors in the mother's womb, all the way to our neighbors just down the street in the nursing home. Jesus, help us to love and value life the way that you love and value life. And may this church be marked by a radical otherworldly love for all people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing together. Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc.